The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so the second form of seeing through or stopping believing, as I'm calling this third part, is to gently and firmly stay with the present moment experience, so not losing contact, but not doing anything about it. So the instruction is something like, do nothing without losing contact. And you will soon realize that this is actually quite challenging. (laughs) It's an art form. That's actually why we're doing it last, is that you need some stability to be able to to do this. And so I think we've developed that throughout the day. And you might think of um, the, the case of making pottery, not when you're trying to make something really complex, and you don't even have to have much experience with pottery to get this image. But you have this wet clay, and you've got a wheel that you're turning it on, and you're trying to make it into a smooth, uh, symmetrical shape. So you do need to stay in touch with the clay. If you don't touch the clay, it doesn't work. So you're touching it, but you're not squeezing it or you know, sticking your finger into it or having too much pressure on one side so it ends up lopsided, right? You can imagine this image. And so imagine then doing this with our experience. So staying in very gentle contact right there, but no pushing. No, and the pushing comes when we have an agenda. We want it not to be here. We want it to stay for and against, basically. Um, and so there's this way of just staying right with it. And then, then things can happen. And I, you know. So this differs a little bit. You know, this differs from the, the big meditation in that in that case we're, we were using space or vastness as our foundation and we were letting things happen within that right? In this case, we're not really changing the size of our mind or consciousness. We're not making it to be a particular size. So then the question is, what is it that we're standing on? You know, what is the foundation of that kind of meditation? And so we're really just relying on the strength of awareness to stay in touch without falling into being for or against. And it does take a fairly strong awareness to have enough equanimity to do that. So... The foundation might sound surprising if you want something more specific as the foundation. It's confidence in our good qualities is actually the basic foundation for being able to do this kind of meditation, or at least that's one of them. And there's this lovely sutta that I wanted to refer to that has some very similar um, instructions as what I'm, as what we're talking about here. It's the sutta. Um, MN4, called Fear and Dread, I'm sorry for the title, um, it's about the Buddha's awakening, actually. It's, it's a very interesting sutta because the Buddha talks about his own awakening um, in the first person. There's several suttas where he does that, and this is one of them. And he's, um, I won't give the whole context, it's fairly, it's several pages sutta, um, but essentially, Somebody comes and asks him, you know, how is it that you're able to do meditation under difficult circumstances? That's kind of the nut of the question. 
And he says, well, I, I can understand your question, he says, because I, one time, you know, when I was, before I was awakened, when I was only an unawakened bodhisattva, I was practicing in the forest, and it was very scary, and there were, you know, it's, it's hard to be out there by yourself just practicing in the woods. And so he goes through a long list of things that he realizes, qualities that he realizes he had before he starts doing his meditation. And he realizes that he has, for example, um, some degree of ethical conduct. I mean, in his case, of course, it was a high degree. But for us, we can understand, oh yeah, you know, basically I don't kill or steal or lie or commit sexual misconduct um, to the degree that I'm able. I at least have that intention. And so that can be a foundation. And and, and he understands further that he has um, mindfulness and that he has... Um, some degree of energy, and that he is not given, he is not given to self praise and disparagement of others. <laughs> you know, qualities that are good. And so, going in with that understanding, he then begins to meditate in the woods, and he finds that the fear and dread, the title of this sutta, come upon him. He's afraid to be out there. He hears sounds that are scary, and there are wild animals, and there might be wild animals. And his solution is standing on the foundation of his own goodness and his own good intentions is that he um, basically decides to just keep doing what he was doing. So he says, if the fear comes while I was walking, I neither sat nor lay down nor stood. I just continued walking. And if it came while I was sitting, I neither stood nor sat nor walked nor lay down. You know, each of the combinations of that. So he doesn't change his posture. It's almost a simple instruction that's too simple. You know, we think, well, why is that so profound? But it is profound. Remember the story I told at the very beginning where I got up and ran out of my meditation interview? If I had stayed sitting, you know, I was in the sitting posture, if I hadn't allowed standing or walking to occur, I wouldn't have gotten up and left. So this, our, our emotions literally do propel us to do things with our bodies. And so, for example, you don't leap off the cushion. <laughs> Some of you may want to at times in meditation. But this is actually, if you extrapolate this to the stance of the mind, this is a very powerful movement to just say, I'm just going to sit here. And this is not beyond the point of wisdom. You know, if you're really about to have a psychotic breakdown of some kind, of course, or if your body is very, you know, seriously going to be injured, of course you should move. But there's something powerful about the stance of saying, you know, I came to this with good intentions, with good actions, with good mindfulness. This is a very worthy activity that I'm doing, and uh, I'm just going to stay with what I'm doing. So there's this idea of the, so I'm adding then this image of the, the pottery wheel of just, just holding experience gently and just going along with it, not pressing into it or pushing away and just staying. So one might say that not reacting is the one thing that fear is powerless against or whatever else we're working with, anger or something else. Not reacting is the one thing that it's powerless against. So, 
Let's sit. Finding a posture that's comfortable and also upright and relaxed. Closing your eyes if that feels all right for you right now. And relax, relax the body. Come into the ease that you felt earlier in the day, whatever degree of it is available to you right now. Check in, how is the body now? Is there anything that can be softened? Softening the face, the jaw, releasing anything that's built up in the shoulders or the chest. Softening the belly. Releasing any bracing in the arms or legs. Maybe on the next exhale, again, letting go through the torso. And then also softening our mind, recalling that we have good qualities At the very least, we've done about five hours of meditation so far today. That's really good. But also our good aspirations that we connected with in the first meditation. Our sense of any sense of wholeness or good wishes for ourselves or others. Our capacity to love without getting too idealistic. Whichever of these has some meaning, just allowing that to infuse your awareness. And connecting that in with the simple sensations of the breath. And it's helpful in this case to have whole body breathing. So just feeling the breath that extends throughout the entirety of the body. in a gentle, open way. We can also open to sounds sounds of the room or the sounds of anything outside, sound of my voice, just letting that flow through our whole body awareness as if you're transparent to sound and it just passes through.
If there are any emotions present, it's fine to open to those, feeling them in the body, feeling equanimous toward their presence, it's okay, accepting. Generally having a perception of rest, rest within all these normal things that happen in our body and mind. There may even be thoughts or intentions. These are fine, they're just, we see them as energy movements, normal activities of the mind, but we don't have to get caught in them. So we don't need to create any limitations on what is allowed to come into experience. We don't need to try to grab everything at once, but just just be allowing. It's okay for anything to arise or pass. If there's nothing particularly prominent in your experience, you can just rest, allow things to come and go. But if you feel something beginning to solidify or coagulate, or if there's any tension, it's fine to turn toward it with interest. See it as this clay Don't lose touch with it, but don't do anything with it. Just bring the mind right up against anything that feels solid. We're not burrowing into it. We're not analyzing it. It's really just holding the mind against it. If you catch your mind doing something for or against or some agenda, then just back off a little bit. It's as if you've pushed into the clay and you need to uh, get your finger out of it. Let the smooth surface come back. 
But if contact is getting weak, your hands are falling off the clay, you can move in a bit. And if whatever it is becomes no longer interesting, of course, you can go back to resting. There's no need to accomplish anything. And then maybe again, some kind of tension will be there and we can turn toward it with interest. You may notice that sometimes as you stay with something, as you have your hands against this wet clay, that the it may begin to, you know, without your doing anything, it may begin to thin out or get holes in it or dissolve slightly. If that starts to happen, you can stay with that process allow that material to become a little bit more porous. There's no rush. Actually, you'll discover if you want that to happen, it will re-solidify. So just stay with it gently without losing touch and see what happens if you allow it to shift under the gentle gaze of your attention.
if there's a long departure from the present moment through thought, or if you've lost track of the meditation, it's no problem. Just reestablish by opening to the body, to sounds, emotions, thoughts, removing any limitations on experience, and then again, staying with it but doing nothing
So one story I remember Andrea Fella sharing uh, that to me relates to this meditation to some degree is that she found herself repeatedly having the thought, you're no good. And this was just a, you know, she had enough practice at that point that she didn't just immediately believe it. She recognized it as a psychological pattern that seemed to be coming up for her, this sense of self-deprecation. And so she kept, she couldn't understand why her mind kept producing this thought, you're no good. And so she just dedicated herself. She was on a long retreat. This was happening in the middle of it. And she just dedicated herself to really watching that thought, you know, when it appeared, just meeting it, not pushing it away, not saying, oh, that's not true, I don't want to have that thought, but not believing it either. So she, had, she did this practice of really staying with it. And each time it came, she would just meet it and feel it and be with it, like this clay, right? This rising to meet something, but not doing anything with it. And she found that um, a number of things happened as she did this multiple times. First, she had a psychological insight into something in her past that might have caused that thought to be coming for her. Um, And that was, she found somewhat useful, but it only released a little bit of the tension this is actually valuable um, to to be aware of that. And then she, she kept doing the practice. She kept staying with it. And eventually she had what's called a vipassana insight or a wisdom insight um, where she actually saw it being formed. You know, she was so clear about staying with it and so willing for it to be there that it kept coming. And there came a moment where she watched it being created and what she saw at that moment was literally her, her insight was, oh, it's just a thought. You know, it's just a bubble of energy that happens to come in that form. And that was the release, you know. And once she saw that, she saw right through it. Um, it, it, maybe, it maybe it still came, I shouldn't say much about that, but it had no power anymore. Once she had really seen through it, and the, the psychological part about how maybe this came from something in my past was only partial, but the actual seeing of its arising, that was what cut the, the attachment to it. So with this kind of practice, we start to get the understanding, um, even if you've just had the, the, the taste of it today, that there are, there are ways that practice can happen on its own. You know, she... Andrea Fella herself did not have the ability to say, I am not going to believe, you know, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to stop clinging to this. I'm going to stop producing this. But somehow the practice and being willing to see it and meeting it with that perfect equanimity that, you know, took some practice to develop, um, then it, it could, it could dissolve somehow. So we start having this sense that practice can happen by itself in that we don't do the release. We do the conditions, we do the practice, the strengthening of our awareness, the angle of approach of being with things. That's what we can supply and then we wait (laughs) and we see how does it change, how does it dissolve, how do we let go. My experience is that the third noble truth of cessation is often a surprise. (laughs) It's like, Oh, (laughs) 
and suddenly we'll see through it or it'll dissolve or it'll explode or it'll change color I, you know it's whatever I don't know what's going to happen but that release is very distinctive feeling you all you know when it's complete or when it's partial even partial is good um, and so there's uh, there's this element of our practice that's not up to us which I find increasingly delightful and beautiful and um, and yeah yes is there could you oh, thank you for remembering to use the microphone I would say that what we're doing today in terms of tasting several different ways of perceiving is helping to helping our intuition to learn. You know, it's like the way a neural network sort of learns by trying things out. Um, over time, if we meet experiences, you know, we, we feel some new tension or have some stuckness or some emotional reaction that we didn't have before and we think oh I wonder how to work with this often there is that sense at the beginning of hmm I don't really know how to approach this you know what's it can what's it going to be um, and then we might get a sense of well you know this feels like something where it's um, there's a lot of structure in there and so maybe the thing to do is to get small and to go in and start teasing apart the different pieces of it or maybe it feels like it's something where um, there's just maybe a single strand or there's something like that wall I described with the inside the tank so if I were to get big maybe that one wall would give in and you know, it would dilute into the larger so I think that's the best answer I have because intuition can't really be something logical yeah I saw this hand next and then Linda after that Oh, maybe it's wearing out of battery. This is tangentially related. Um, so you mentioned a practitioner talking about I'm no good coming up. And this is just something I think about a lot. What about the opposite where you have, and this is more of a general question, like, you know, within Buddhism in the United States, like if you look at Spirit Rock and um, Multiversity, the place down in Santa Cruz, <clears throat> there's a lot of, like, I'm really good coming up, it feels like to me, um, in terms of the, the cost of people to attend workshops and sort of the cult of fame mm. that I think is subtly brewing, you mm. know, maybe not even so subtly that people are really interested in that. I mean, I'm really been attracted to being here because of the Donna-based uh, part of Insight in Redwood City. And uh, I'm part of a, a Donna-based Sangha in, in San Francisco as well. But I just, and this is maybe, you know, again, something that is tangentially related, but I just see so many practitioners who are just focused on, I, I guess, maybe watering the seeds of of fame and the antithesis of I'm not I'm no good but I I am good hmm. um, maybe it's not related and maybe you'd rather talk about it offline but I'm, I'm just curious what from your 
take on Buddhism in, in the United States and in general, if you have any thoughts on that, because just something I struggle with as, mm. as a writer and somebody who's been thinking about Buddhism a lot in the United States. Mm. Well, I think I would approach your question from the point of view of, of the conditions that are being created. And um, for practice to develop, as we've talked about a few times today, what our job is to put certain conditions in place. And so um, it's the understanding in this community, and I, th- I can certainly speak for that, that when there is the foundation of generosity... Um, the Donovase system, it's actually good for the way people's practice is going to develop. You know, that foundation of giving the teachings freely and um, offering back when we're receiving, offering what feels right to our heart, that has a certain conditioning tendency on how it is that the path then unfolds. And so I think this is not always, you know, maybe not a lot of care is always taken to look at that or maybe there are you know you'll get different results from different conditions um and that's that's just something we need to be aware of in our practice and i i don't know that i want to comment in too much on the whole larger scene except to say that it's incumbent on each of us as a practitioner to feel very carefully um what conditions feel supportive to us for the development of our practice at this time and so if we feel like, you know, if you walk into this center and the fact that it's Donna-based is really meaningful, well, that's a clue. It's okay to follow that. This is just what I was talking about with the Buddha, talk, relying on his good qualities. So we want to go to places and be involved with people that seem to bring out the good qualities in us and then actually appreciate that and be aware of that and use that as the foundation for our practice in order to meet the dukkha that we have in our lives and transform it. It's a it's an important condition that we have that goodness as the foundation. Does that help a little bit with what you were aiming at? Yeah. Linda. Um, I guess I must have been sleeping when you um, talked about the. I think there were three noble truths. Well, there's four overall. Oh, good. Well, I got the third one, which I think is the solution. The cessation. Cessation. Yeah. So I was hoping you'd just go over them quickly again. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk about the a little bit about the fourth noble truth later, but we've been doing the fourth noble truth. So, yes, okay. So the first noble truth is the truth of dukkha, the truth that there is stress or struggle in the way that we approach life. And I assume that all of us have this because if you didn't feel any stress or struggle, you probably don't need to be here. (laughs) So this is something we can all relate to, that there is this difficulty with living the human life. And then the second noble truth says that, and this is for us to discover, it's not offered as something you have to believe, but it says that the um, reason for that, or the cause, sometimes it's used, but I... I think the preferred term is that the arising of suffering happens when there is the arising of clinging or craving. You know, that somehow we're grabbing onto experience or we're pushing it away. It's, that's considered this for, this for and against or the delusion. But basically the, the ignorance and the craving are, are contributing to that suffering. 
And so then the third noble truth says, if we could just let go of that cause or that condition for suffering to be there, of course it wouldn't be there. This is a therefore kind of a natural law kind of process. You know, if there's if something is there because there are conditions for it, well then if we want it not to be there, we should remove those conditions. And the third noble truth says it's possible. It's actually possible to end suffering. It's possible for tightness to dissolve. It's possible for things to transform and change and no longer have any struggle or stress. And then the fourth noble truth says, and there's a way to get from here to there. You're not, it's not just something that's hypothetical. It's really possible. And these are, these are the steps to do it. And then, so most of the teachings and most of the practices are part of that fourth noble truth, the path. Um, and the, the trueness of them is how well they point at that cessation. And so if there were one solution, there were one, exactly one thing that you always need to do, that's all I'd teach. But, of course, there's a lot of things that need to be done because our struggles and stresses are complicated knots, right? Um, and we can work them slowly, um, like slowly dissolving some rope that has been knotted. Maybe we put it in hot water and work on it to try to get it to loosen up. That's a lot of what we do. Um, and then every now and then we get into a really good position and we see it so clearly that we just take a sword and we cut right through the knot and it's done. Like it's just a thought and it falls away. But that doesn't happen every moment, does it? So we have many methods. So does that help you, Linda? It's the truth of suffering, the truth of its cause or arising, the truth of its cessation, and the truth of the path. So I want to read a little poem from my um, one of my favorite Buddhist poets, Rosemary Traumer, called How It Feels. Remember that day when you felt as if there were two sumo wrestlers inside your gut? Remember how they whumped and slammed each other and your whole body felt bruised with their weight? That was the day you said you would never let yourself be small ever again. But here you are, considering how to cut off your limbs to fit into someone else's box. It's no mistake you were here. There is more to learn and unlearn about who you are and who you are becoming. Those sumo wrestlers, they'll get tired, and when they do, offer them tea in very small cups. Ask them where they've been so long. Cheer them on when they finish their sipping, when they start to fight again, making in you more space than you've ever felt inside before. <laughs> 